0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today we have a fabulous panel, um, and I'm going to introduce them all, and uh, then we have Tony Perkins who's going to be leading the discussion. But let me give you a little bit of an insight of who we have up here and how lucky we are today. So Tim Draper, and of course I mentioned this is the DFJ or Draper Fisher Jurvetson Ontario Thought Leader Lecture Series. So the first the thing only I need way to, I get to exactly
1: speak is when I him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know what? We keep begging you to show up, and hopefully uh, you'll come back again. Uh, Tim is really remarkable. He is the managing director of Draper Fisher Jurvetson, and he is known as the fi- father of viral marketing. Way back, what year was it when Hotmail started? 90? 95 came up with the idea of putting little messages at the bottom of the emails to essentially uh, spread a message in a really viral way and of course that's something we now take for granted all the time. Uh, Team also launched the DFJ Global Network which is an international uh, network of early stage venture capital funds uh, with uh, offices in at least 30 different countries around the world. He is the founder of BizWorld, and if you don't know about BizWorld, it's a program that uh, teaches entrepreneurship to kids. I've had the pleasure of teaching it for many years, and uh, it's just terrific. He has a degree from Stanford in EE and also a Harvard MBA. And uh, I love the fact that he was named an always-on number one venture capital deal maker in 2008. So that's a nice segue to Tony. Okay? So Tony is the creator and former editor of Red Herring and the CEO of Always On. How many of you in the room get the daily Always On newsletter? Well, if you don't, you should. I know today there were a couple articles I literally sent on to several different people. Really, really interesting. He is consistently ranked as one of the top ten technology business journalists. He's been a member of the World Economics Forum media leaders and uh, was the CEO of Upside Publishing. Uh, He basically spends a lot of time chronicling technology and is a regular columnist for the Wall Street Journal. So, the third panelist we have is Michael Mo. Michael Mo is a founding partner of Think Panther. Is it Pamier?
2: Think Equity.
0: Think Equity. Okay, that's that changed. And is a former director of Global Growth Stock Research and a managing director of Merrill Lynch was one. And he's been named the best on the street by the Wall Street Journal. So, without further ado, we've got our panel talking about the next Big thing. (laughs) Uh,
3: Well, it's always good to be here. I want to note that uh, along with uh, Always On and Stanford Technology Venture Program, uh, we co-produce the Stanford Summit every year. We've done that for seven years in a row now. It's in July. And if you want to hear about it. talk to either Tina or myself. So uh, in essence, uh, you're wondering uh, why we have such distinguished people here. It's because uh, I think as you've just witnessed, Tina is a force of nature and basically we'll do whatever she tells us to do. (laughs) So uh, here we are. Uh, I wanted to kind of start out, I think, you know, deciphering uh, kind of the current environment here. Uh, Let me just ask for a raise of hands. How many of you and the audience feel stressed out about the economy uh, in some way?
1: Well, now I do.
3: (laughs) Uh, So I wanna, we're we're here to relieve your stress, uh, I think, and ours as well. Um, But in order to kind of set the framework, uh, I thought we'd start out uh, with Tim. And I mean, from my perspective, and again, always on hold seven events, our focus is on uh, championing the entrepreneur as a media brand. Uh, Social network, event company, and I would say that we started seeing softening uh, in the market just about a year ago. And then I think that come October, you know, there was a lot of frightening things going on, uh, but things have kind of eased up uh, a little bit uh, since then. Uh, because I think the venture-backed private company market uh, a lot because of a, an open letter or a letter that ended out on the web by Sequoia Capital kind of froze everybody in our world for a little bit. So uh, looking back on the last 12 months, Tim, you know, how would you kind of analyze uh, the journey that we've been through? And
1: um, Okay, well, I'll do that, but first I, I want to say that, that I've, I've got several ideas for a new bike safety program. Uh, first, keep, first, keep me off a bike. I've had about four accidents where I've hit cars, uh, so you know, and a lot hit my head. And um, and then I thought you could just paint it with that, that glow-in-the-dark stuff. Anyway, those are my two ideas. And, okay, and now the, I'll and, get on. And, and this is um, from a guy
3: that never drinks.
1: Uh, you know? <laughs> um, so I I think uh, this is one of the great opportunities of the world uh, that, that we've ever had in our lifetime. Um, first of all, uh, there are cycles. There are natural cycles uh, where uh, there's, there tends to be job creation, job uh, destruction, job creation, job destruction. And, uh, and it, it, um, those same cycles actually go with the private equity business, who grows and then there's job destruction and then the venture capital business and that grows and there's job creation and then it needs job destruction, needs job creation. Um, And uh, now clearly is the time for venture capitalists to really whip into shape. Um, It's a great time for us and it's a really great time for you. In fact, I look at this where the, the world you know, a nu- If you were studying during this time, basically an, an economic nuke went off in your, in, in the world, and um, and now is the opportunity of a lifetime to go after something that you've always wanted to go after. You always thought was done the wrong way, and and go get it because it's it's the great entrepreneurs that rise to occasions like this. This is, um, in fact, the greatest companies of the world were all started in depressions and recessions. Um, And that includes GE, IBM, Microsoft, Shell Oil, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, uh, you name it. Any big, huge, successful 60-year-old company started in uh, a recession or a depression. Um, It is one of those times when, uh, when the world is scared They don't know what to do. A lot of people are laid off their jobs. And you being, I mean, this is Stanford, right? I mean, and Stanford's gotten a lot better since I was here. (laughs) And um, and with great, this is a Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility. You have the great power, mental powers out there. I can feel them. I'm feeling it. And, uh, and you have great responsibility to go out there and lead the charge in a new direction to build a business that creates profits, employs people and grows and uh, does something in a new way where you take uh, something that's been done the same way for years and years and years and you turn it on its ear with a new technology or a new business twist or, or um, just a new group of people and you go after it in a new way, it is, it is your responsibility right now, go out there and do that.
2: I'm a little more optimistic than Tim. No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, um, I think what Tim said, I couldn't agree more with. I think it was he, the bike
1: thing, right? That the, really no,
2: I'm, 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 I'm dangerous <laughs> on a bike too. But as you take a couple steps back and kind of look at where we've come from, where we're at and where we're going, I think the, the, the classic recipe of opportunity is where there's problem when there's chaos. The bigger the problem, the greater the chaos, the greater the opportunity. What entrepreneurs do is they solve problems. And you know, we believe, I believe, that as you kind of look at you know, what can get this country, and candidly, this global economy out of the funk it's in, it's people like, that are in this room thinking about where the world can go, taking the risk, and creating solutions for those issues. I think, you know, one of the, one of the truisms that um, I believe is uh, a great way to kind of guide somebody in, in today's, you know, very nervous world, probably the greatest investor of all time, Warren Buffett, said, you know, has the saying that the time to be fearful is when people are greedy and to be greedy when people are fearful. Well, I guarantee you, people are more fearful today than you've ever seen. And, you know, greedy might, you know, that's how you define the word greedy, but I think the opportunity for opportunistic entrepreneurial, forward-thinking people. They're looking at where, what can be done. It is the most exciting time of my lifetime. That doesn't mean there aren't all sorts of challenges, not all sorts of issues, all sorts of potholes, but it is a time to really do something special. So that's my, my general overview.
1: Great. And okay. it's going to be hard to get money to start your business. So you might have to start it as a uh, as a, uh, you know, a work for hire kind of thing. Uh, but in the meantime, create something really cool that grows and employs a lot of people and generates a lot of profit and wealth for everybody involved.
2: We do the work for hire call, no. So, so cool.
3: not to dwell on the 30,000 yeah. foot level here, but, you know, again, I want to kind of put this into perspective before we talk about get the drill down to the real opportunities. So how, how is today different than the Internet bubble <coughs> era? Because we we saw, people forget we saw Nasdaq go from fifty five hundred down to eleven 1, hundred, so that's a little bit different than going from twenty eight hundred to thirteen hundred. Yeah, right I
2: now. think it's you know, I think the biggest difference is really and, and while innovation really never slowed down. And Tim, just to carry forward Tim's point about great companies, I mean Google basically powered its way, and, obvi- and arguably was created because of. The, the implosion of the dot com bubble and a lot of other great innovative companies that have kind of powered their way through but really since two thousand when March of two thousand when the internet bubble pricked you know it's not been a glorious time for technology and growth companies and so I think the, the you know the reality for all that is that um, you know when you, when you, when you look at um, you know things that even like the, the some of the greatest opportunities is when you have to really focus on how you're going to create something that people pay for so
1: well, I, th- I think actually how it affects me as a venture capitalist was we were in the center of the hurricane uh, when it was the internet bubble came and and popped, um, and we felt every little piece of it. Um, there were some real positives there. Um, one was that um, if one per- in the Silicon Valley, if um, it was great because there were usually uh, both the husband and the wife were working. And if one lost their job, the other, that one, the other one still had a job, so they weren't in bread lines. And, they, um, and the, the one who lost their job said, well, I'll just start something. And that, that created a whole new wave of activity. And, and so we were really in the center of that boom and bust. Here, um, we're, we're sort of collateral damage. Uh, it's like the, the elephant stepped a little too close to our teepee and, uh, and we, got, we got knocked over. Um, but it also uh, is, a, is a, a situation where a, a great entrepreneur can now look at this and say this is, um, this is something that's going to fundamentally change things and it's going to allow me to do this. Where I never could have done this before, because everybody was doing it this way, and it would have been very difficult to do. So, there is that now new opportunity um, that's created by this this complete, um, you know, obliteration of the of the economic system. So, <laughs> we're warming you up here. Um,
3: the other night uh, I, uh, on Charlie Rose, uh, you saw Mark Andreessen. I don't know if you guys caught that. Um, he was the founder of Netscape. He founded Loud Cloud. He's now doing Ning. Uh, and there was this very poignant moment with, uh, where they were talking about, I think, the New York Times. Was it the New York Times Should or whatever? It. And he just, he's talking about the paper version, and he kept telling Charlie Rose that they just need to kill it. Yeah. You know, that, the, that, that print newspapers are a piece of history. Uh, that, you know you, gotta, you know, you gotta bite the bullet uh, and just accept the new reality. So, I know I'm the moderator, uh, but I'm gonna give a quick opinion myself here on this subject, and basically, and I'd love to get your reaction to this, but basically during the internet bubble, it, we pumped out a bunch of fake companies that people bid up, and then all of a sudden they figured out, you know, uh, we spent five years trying to figure out how many pet companies we could put on the internet only to find out the, the number was zero. Uh, and, and then there was a lot of wreckage, uh, regrouping, but a lot of that whole bubble period was, was based upon a vision of, you know, of the internet uh, steamrolling the way people do business and creating what was then called the new economy my view, my theory right now is that all those things that we talked about that were going to happen, like the end of television, the end of newspapers, all that stuff that we poured a bunch of money in thinking it was going to happen ten years ago is actually happening now. Okay, And so a lot of the destruction in the market, a lot of the jobs that are being destroyed are jobs that are being steamrolled uh, uh, a lot by the Internet, uh, but increasingly by the green tech, uh, movement. Because every, right now we're, doing, we're looking at how we do everything. Entrepreneurs are looking at how we do everything, and they're going, how can I do that same thing in a way that's better for the environment? And that's bringing the Silicon Valley m- mentality into the whole uh, green space, which I think is super exciting. So the way I kind of see it, the reason I share your optimism is because we are the future. Silicon Valley is the future and a lot of the jobs that we're seeing being destroyed are never going to come back but it is our world that is really causing the disruption and therefore is going to be the one that creates
1: uh, the jobs. Does that sound good? Yeah, everything but the fake company thing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually think they were real companies. They got, some of them got ahead of themselves, some of them, I, and I think actually they're. All of those companies, some became features of other companies, but um, the Internet is bigger than it was in 2000, you know, in 1999 and 2000. It's getting, it's even bigger. Um, we're all a much bigger part of it. It really did move things, and I, th- I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and uh, what Tony alluded to was, you know, GM, Ford, and Chrysler are all, um, you know, sort of an old way of creating a car. It pollutes. It's, uh, it's low gas mileage. It uh, it's not that safe. It doesn't go that fast. Um, now you can come. You can get a Tesla. Uh, for for a, now, it's gotten a, it's a reasonable price. <laughs> Um, but it's zero to 60 in four seconds, and it's, you know, it costs a lot less than a, any kind of you know, high-cost high Ferrari or Porsche. Um, and, and it's a new way of looking at things. He, that entrepreneur said, hey, battery technology is such that, that these lines are going to cross, and they're going to cross pretty soon where you're gonna get better performance, better gas mileage out of a car that's electric, all electric, than you did out of a gas-powered car. And I think the world is starting to recognize that. People are starting to think, well, why don't I buy at least a hybrid? And, uh, and the Detroit guys just didn't get it. And, there, um, and this is happening all over the world. In India, there's a company called the Riva that has a terrific, you know, uh, electric car, that um, turns out it's more expensive than the gas alternative to buy, but to own over a five-year period, it's less expensive. Um, There are some major breakthroughs in clean technology. Um, I think, actually, the most powerful one we have is, um, is... going to be for many years to come is nuclear power, and that has to be uh, put into place. We need more nuclear power, absolutely. But, um, but there's some really cool new technologies. There's one where, um, that we funded that has, um, it, it's like a kid's experiment. You, you put a whole bunch of mirrors around and you point them at a tin can and you heat it up and it generates steam, and that steam then drives a turbine, and that turbine runs electricity. It turns out this is the most efficient way to generate electricity except maybe nuclear power. And, uh, and it comes from an entrepreneur with a wild vision. And, uh, and all of these things are starting to happen. I think if you look at a big problem, if you're entrepreneurs out there, don't waste your time on a small problem. Go after a big problem. Go after something really important. Say, "Gee, this is this seems to be something that a lot of people." God, start a new kind of bank. (laughs) You know, go after something that really matters to people. Because if you're going to dedicate your life to it, it might as well be something really important. And when you when you finally accomplished it, you. you will be much more satisfied, you'll employ more people, and you'll make a bigger impact on the world.
2: You know, if you look at the history of disruptive technology and you go back, even, you know, the, the human nature doesn't change much. You go back to the railroad industry, that was a disruptive technology. When it came out, it got overfunded, speculation went rampant, bankruptcy in 1890 or 1892, basically, you know, $2 billion in those dollars, in, 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 in 1890 dollars went away obviously railroad industry kept on going got much much bigger than even people could anticipate automobiles in the turn of the century in 1900 you had 240 new automobile companies built in detroit which by the way at that time was the silicon valley of its day you had all sorts of capital all sorts of bankruptcy basically three three companies that barely can survive today but that's just the natural course of disruptive and there's nothing been anything more disruptive than the internet which is as is, is, is tony said if you look at what the predictions that were made 10 years ago, people said ridiculous. Actually, in many cases, it's been exceeded. And so now, when you look at energy technology, green technology, and I think people see the massive problem and all the different things, there's a rush of capital that's coming into this industry. I don't know that if, I, you know, it would, one thing I know for sure, looking out maybe over the next 10 or 20 years, I don't think there's probably going to be an area that, that creates larger companies the what you're going to see in that area just because of the problems and the size of this market and the size of the solutions, I think, that are available, that will be made available.
1: Yeah, Mike might hit on a very interesting point, and I, I want to hit it hard, and I think the people who are older in this crowd will recognize this more than the people who are younger. But there has been so much fundamental change that we've gone through over our lifetimes, and if you go back 100 years, it's... Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, before that they didn't have running water, didn't have electricity. There were a lot of things that we didn't have and and things that we can't even get along with now. I mean, I, I remember threatening, just threatening to take my daughter's cell phone away. <laughs> and, and that was just a, a panic. Was, she was attached, completely attached to her cell phone, whereas 10 years ago, there were very few cell phones out there and they were big and they were in cars. Um, and uh and so the world changes very very quickly technology marches along very quickly in fact it's accelerating uh because it's the the free world's gotten bigger there are a lot more great minds out there pushing the edge of technology and um and that is moving faster and faster and so when you when you start your business think five years out but push it a little bit you know go from uh, a fast self navigating car to a flying fast navigating car. Or go, or just the idea just push yourself a little further because there are a lot of people on this world, in this world, and there are a lot of people innovating, and our worlds are going to change more than we ever imagined. Uh, financial bounces aside. You're, you're going to see the finances go down, go up. Turns out there's more innovation if you look at Moore's law. There's more innovation in a downturn in the economy than there is when things are going really well. So, um, so push it and say, you know, okay, what what's what's going to be the world? What's the world going to be like in five years? And and then say, okay, what's it going to be like the year after that?
2: yeah and I think just to expand on that point, and I'll turn it back to Tony for a question. I think you know, I think so often if you took a poll here, you know what are the areas that people should be in? It's kind of like what's hot here and now as opposed to really looking over the horizon and I think one thing that history's shown for sure is that whatever whatever would turn out to be the most popular thing in this room probably wouldn't be five years from now in terms of what the success would be. So thinking about what are the true mega trends that are taking place in society, in the global marketplace in terms of globalization, the internet, convergence, demographics. I mean, demographics is the most powerful indicator of where the future is. In 1800, just for an example, you, know, you, had, you had basically the average person lived at 40 years old. The average woman had eight children, six of which died before the time they got to adolescence. You know, you look today, and all of a sudden the population of the, the world has is, is, uh, doubled in the last 50 years. People have 2.1 children per, per, per household. I mean just But you can see these patterns emerge and therefore looking at what looks like five years from now or 10 years from now or 15 years from now, by looking at those patterns and position to where the puck's going as opposed to where it's been, I think that's where you can create some real opportunities.
3: So <clears throat> I'll throw another one of my thoughts at it. You guys see what you think. Um, you know, when I look back historically, it's very interesting. Down here on Alpine Road, there's a little coffee shop called Conditori. And in the mid-'70s, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, they used to show up there, and they had the homebrew computer club where they would bring their hand-built PCs in there. And their whole vision was that that they thought that everybody in the world was going to need a PC, which was like this ridiculous idea uh, in the mid-'70s. By 1986, Microsoft had gone public, and... I would argue is that's when the PC generation really started to drive the innovation economy. And you know, now when you look at the Fortune 500 or whatever, uh, a vast majority of the companies at the top are were built uh, out of that generation. Now, for the first time in my life, I see a, a generational change that has occurred, which, you know, you can call it all sorts of things. I call it the instant messaging generation. The, the folks who grew up with real-time communications uh, starting about 10 years ago, now they're 25 years old uh, at the center, and they're entering the workforce, and, they're, and, and they have completely different behavior patterns. Okay, they, they're, they're virtual, they're always on, uh, they communicate in real time, they use you know, all sorts of different text messaging, et cetera, et cetera, which is really changing the landscape. Uh, so back to your GM analogy, we hold a Going Green conference, you go out there and there's 15 alternative cars in our little you know, auto garden. 30 days later I'm watching these guys, dinosaurs begging for money from you know, Congress and it's kind of like there was a disconnect here. So I I think we're going through, you know, this whole generational change. And I think the most important thing for people to embrace is that whatever you do, you better put uh, that new product or service, place it on top of this new generation because they're now in charge. And if you try to present them with any, whether printed newspaper or, you know, a television program that they have to run home at 9 o'clock to watch or whatever, they're just, they're just not gonna go for it. So, I think that's where it gets Mark Andreessen's telling Charlie Rose that the New York Times needs to kill their printed product and just go all online. I mean, do you see that same generational impact? Which is really, you know, we're the PC guys, really. We're a well, PC generation. But
2: I, but I think there's, I mean, a couple key things that have just, you've seen things be accelerated. One is just how, kid, you know, if you want to understand the future, look at your kids. You know, Tim talked about the chaos with his, his daughter. My daughter lost her iPhone a week ago. An APB went out on Facebook to her 600 million friends, saying, "I can't find my phone," because it was the it's not that's a phone. It's her life. It's her computer. It's everything she does is off off that platform. And I think as you look, I mean, how many people here do tweet on Twitter? I mean, you look at this. The company didn't exist 18 months ago. You got six million people doing live time digital communication. So I mean. I think it's clearly the mobile computing, coupled with how people expect to get their information, how they expect to communicate, you know, it's it's totally radically different, and I think it's in, in it's, in it's powerful, and it's, it's an important concept to understand.
1: I had a great tweet experience. <laughs> it was really fun. I, I typed this thing in, but somebody asked me, um, hey, I'm about to go speak um, on what are the 10 Biggest problems a startup can have, or something, and so I I just typed out some, and then I said, "Hey, do you mind if I'm going to I'm going to put this on my blog?" Put it on my blog, and and I put it on my blog that night. The next day, I went and I I saw this. I saw about five startups. One of the startups was this new kind of tweeting startup that makes tweeting a lot easier. And 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 there were there were thirty comments on my ten that he he just brought up. He just said, "Oh, here are the thirty comments." Okay. And then then the next entrepreneur comes and he goes he goes, "Here's why I'm going to be successful. Here are the ten things that can make a, a startup fail that you said." And, uh, and this is why I'm going to be successful. It was amazing. And that was the next day. I mean, for the young people here, they, don't, they say, oh, of course. And I'm thinking, whoa, 30 people actually commented on my thing before I even you know woke up in the morning. And it was, I mean, that, that tweet, tweeting is really starting to <laughs> proliferate. Yeah.
3: Tweeting is sweet. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a tweeter. Um, the uh, so again back to this idea. I mean, I, I think I think there's been a, a huge huge behavioral change. Uh, I'll give you an example of a statistic, which I think is really interesting. You know, somewhere between thirty and forty percent of the time that we're consuming media and content, we're on the internet. Okay. Yet we just had our on media conference back in New York you know, somewhere between only 6 and 7% of the ad dollars are invested in advertising on the Internet. So there's this, like, gigantic delta between the old Madison Avenue world and how they're investing their advertising dollars on behalf of their clients and where people are, where the eyeballs actually are.
2: And, and, and the other piece that's going to make that even more powerful, as you see that catch-up, is that 30%, if you look at younger people, they spend more than 30%, and that's right. only going to be going up. Right. So.
3: so just in the online advertising sector alone, it seems like there's going to be a lot of cool companies created trying to figure help Madison Avenue bridge that gap between the ad dollars that aren't being spent and, and where all the eyeballs are. I mean.
1: Yeah, you know, this reminds me of something. We have an investment in a company called Glam. And, um, and this sends, this is also a message for why an entrepreneur is often better off with less money than more. We, um, we had invested in this company and he was spending it um, at a reasonable rate. But we didn't really have a business model. This was just a little site for uh, women to go see fashion and that kind of thing, and it wasn't really taking off. and And we said, you've got to cut your expenses in half. And he was so mad at me; he was just furious. And he said, "What do you mean? We got plenty of money in the bank. We, this is good for at least." 18 months, whatever. What are you telling me? I got to cut it in half. Then we're going to have money for three years or whatever. You're totally wasting your money. And I said, I said, no. We got to cut this in half until we get a business model. And and uh, he was just walked away so pissed. And then he he came back about a month later, and and he said, thank you so much. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, uh oh. Um, and he said. I'm so glad you came up with this. And I thought, well, I didn't come up with anything. And, and he said, well, what we discovered in going through our real business model was that we can sell ads for all those bloggers out there that have been blogging to our site, and they all want to share revenue with us. And so we're changing the whole business model, and we're going after this. And now Glam is the 10th largest media site in the world. Um, and, and it came from nowhere. It came from just you know, forced less money. But it, it, you can grow very, very quickly uh, because we all communicate so much faster. And you, if you have some new way of using a cell phone or tweeting or whatever it is that you're doing, um, it will proliferate around the world much, much quicker. And that will um, allow you to get to you know, a billion people much, much quicker. And by reaching those billion people, you can advertise to them. You can uh, get them to pay for a subscription for something. You can ship them something. Uh, any number of things. But it can happen just like that. And so. Um, my belief is that you're going to get to, you know, companies are going to get to a billion dollars in value faster and faster and faster and faster.
2: Well, YouTube so, you didn't exist five years ago. Today it gets a billion hits a day for my daughter. You alone. Two, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, my daughter, <laughs> exactly. No, you know, as a more important network than NBC. And when you look at these different networks, whether it's Skype, which I think, you know, there's four million people on the Skype network. As, we're, as I'm speaking, 10 million people are on Skype. If you look at Facebook, 200 million people. There's 25 million mobile, which I think on a mobile computer, which is a huge, huge, huge uh, trend. You know, the phone is your computer. There are 25 million mobile Facebook users. Four million people use it every single day. So it's, it's and, and this is just getting more velocity to the, this whole mobile network.
3: Yeah, one one uh, interesting statistic that I looked at was if you look at the top 10 websites in 2005 versus the top uh, 10 websites today, there are five new brands that are on that. So that means just in the last three and a half years, oh five companies, by the way, all of which were placed were instant messaging generated driven brands, uh, replaced five. Uh, big, you know, large brands like MSN fell off the list. eBay fell off the list. Uh, so again, I think that just is a great illustration of of, of uh, opportunity. Um, I love that gl- glam example, so I want to just kind of focus in on it because I think if we're talking about the next big thing, there's several big gl- glam opportunities out there, right? So. What exactly happened? So you had Glam; they were creating their own content, trying to be their own site. But then they, then they, then you told them to cut in half. So then that forced them to go and aggregate other blogs, like uh, glamour blogs, yeah, into their site. And they said, "Hey, if you do that on our site, we'll sell the ads, and then we'll share the revenue with you." is, yeah. that, is that the business model? Yeah,
1: and then they, uh, and then of course they moved to from fashion to beauty to. I don't know gardening, whatever health, and uh, and now they've got a men's site that's brash, and they call it brash, and it's the same kind of thing sports, whatever, and uh, and so they're they're covering all these categories. All these bloggers get a great deal. They these guys sell ads, and they split it with the blogger, and uh, uh, it, it, it's it's amazing that that business model just came from a forced you know, forcing people to get sort of creative on the thing.
3: So so in theory, you could go over to the Stanford bookshop and stand in front of the magazine rack, right, and say there's a glam opportunity in behind each, every brand, Yeah, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because if you believe Mark Andreessen, there will be no magazine rack in about three years because there will be no more print, um, which will be not very exciting. Um, <laughs> so, okay, so... Uh, that's the media area. What about the whole entertainment? Is there legs in the entertainment area? I'll give you a little. Uh, you'll learn that I'm full of statistics here. Uh, Disney, for the first time in their SEC filing in 2008, noted that they had a "quote unquote" meaningful digital media business. Okay, and my insiders tell me that at about 40 billion in revenue. Their digital media related business is about two billion of that, mm-hmm. and underneath that would be uh, they bought Penguin, which is the social network for young kids. Uh, they distribute you know tens of millions of featured films over iTunes, uh, so that's becoming a huge uh, generator of sales, uh, direct sales versus their DVD business, which is flattening out so it seems to me that if If two billion out of forty billion is digital media today, that if you were to project out, say five years, that number is gonna go to close to fifty percent of their revenue. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. So again, how are they gonna do that? They're gonna in part have to go out and find the club penguins of the world and build their digital media business, you know, while they're just kind of getting whatever blood out of they, they can out of their old paradigm like, you know, television network or whatever, and push it forward. I mean, do you guys see that same uh, opportunity in the media business as well?
1: Cool, virtual Disneyland. Yeah. (laughs) So you can go do your 3D avatars and you go through, hey, Mickey, that'd be fun. Um, I think, I, I actually think that, you know, by looking at Disney, you say, you know, look, it's an old, tired, big, huge business. Um, they're going to be laggards into the digital world. They're going to go in screaming and kicking, and maybe they'll buy some properties, but I think they, uh, you know, they have some big cash cows. They've got Disneyland, and they've got all those movies that they keep pounding out. Um, now, of course, the delivery of those movies is going to all be digital. I, um, in fact, that guy's watching one right now. <laughs> Um, but it's yeah. I think that's all moving along. In fact, um, you know, you'll start seeing your movies on the on the iPhone too, and um, and I think uh, Disney should get in. You know, Disney and all of those content providers should get in front of that sort of thing, uh, and and put their content into new forms because they, that's how they're going to just keep. Staying
2: uh, current. But it's classic, the classic innovator's dilemma, which is even if they know what the reality looks like, it's so tough to kill what has been their cash cow and what their business was all built upon. So I was, uh, two weeks ago, I was down at a MediaX day where they had a, a big media business in, which will go unnamed, and they, they, they understand the reality of their historic business, but how they switch it, to a digital one, and they want to figure out every which way to do it, but it's going to, it's going to create challenges. But the, the, the reality of what you just said, going from two billion to forty to something approaching fifty percent, I think that's reality. But when you talk about entertainment and throwing other pieces in, I mean the whole gaming area is so big. And looking at this, you know, the iPhone is a platform to build games. I saw a couple of weeks ago the first millionaire building an app on the iPhone that would create a million dollars of revenue building a gaming application on the iPhone in a month. One. Developer, boom, it took off, and all of a sudden, to Tim's point, you got 17 million of these devices out there, boom. I mean, it's just—it's—it's it's, it's exciting to see kind of the leverage, if you will, to the digital model.
3: So, just on the iPhone uh, platform itself, there's a whole
1: new marketplace. New
3: marketplace of, of brands waiting uh, to happen and get Draper money and take off.
1: Yeah. Uh, so make it different enough. Make it something. That is that the iPhone's never been used for. Yeah, and then some... that's something that, that we might consider.
3: It was, it was interesting. I just had dinner uh, in Tahoe with uh, a guy who worked as the head of the iPhone group uh, for several years and you know, was known as being the father of the iPod. Uh, that was his idea. Uh, so he says. And uh, <laughs> anyway... Um, you know, he was just talking about what even Apple... His name was Steve Jobs. Yeah, this no, it's not Steve.
2: Success as many fathers uh, a failure uh, as an uh, orphan. It just shows you mean,
3: that, you know, one man doesn't necessarily think of all the good ideas, uh, although we all love uh, Steve. Um, but uh, what he was saying is even, you know, Steve is really a PC generation guy. He is the father of the PC generation. Uh, and even he, when you look at the stages of the iPhone... Um, had to kind of be dragged, kicking, and pushing to open up the iPhone to new apps. Okay? Mm. So, I mean, think about it. The most fun that you have on your iPhone today is finding cool new apps that radically, you know, change your life and, 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 and make them better and make you find things quicker and entertain you and the whole thing. Um, so uh, I thought that was an interesting anecdote but again it plays back to this idea that there is a generational change here and open is what you know, seems to be the operative word. Now free is also in there somewhere and for guys that want to make money free is kind of a scary word but how uh, viral marketing is free marketing which is good because it means lower expenses but uh, how does are you, are you guys worried about free
1: and open hurting the top line at all? Um... Well, I think free is a great way of, of marketing your product. You have, to, you have to get it past a certain point before you are a, a valuable commodity in general. It, it, in general, people don't really want to pay a lot more for those little mm-hmm. iPhone games they want to try them for a while and then spread them to their friends and then when they, they get out there. Um, and free really works if you I- interconnect, If it's if it's more of a network kind of thing, where if I send it to you, you send it to your friends, they send it to their friends, that kind of thing works really well for something that's free. I mean, free works well in that way, that you know it's going to spread. Free for something that isn't going to spread, that people are just going to buy is a lot tougher. I think that's a lot tougher. Um, so I think you to create viral marketing, you have to think in terms of, um, of you know it, it goes from you to your friends, from their friends to their friends to their friends to their friends. And it spreads um, geometric with a geometric progression. And that's where free really matters. You know, there's one other thing that's really important, I think, to think about during this kind of time. And that is, I, I call it the deal. I was talking to my daughter, and um, she said, well, you know, why do you, have, why do you make a deal? And I, I uh, compared it to shopping, and it, suddenly her eyes lit up, which was <laughs> kind of funny. Um, but in shopping, you're making a deal. And if you make a deal, you're both better off. No matter what that deal is, you're both better off because you made the deal and you like it, and they made the deal and they like it, and you're you're both better off. You buy something in a store, you're better off, and the store is better off, and all the people that made that are better off, and they all create more and more jobs. Now that works in business too. You make a deal with somebody in business, uh, both of you are better off. And you've now created um, the beginnings of a new potential network of people that you've affected and have improved. And uh, so, so focus on making deals. I mean, Bill Gates and, uh, I mean, think of the, the number of deals he's made, but also think of all the deals anyone's made in buying Microsoft software. And they're all better off because of it. So, so go out and do deals, and that builds an economy, and that grows an economy. If you're alone, if you don't do deals, this is what I said to my daughter, if you don't do deals, let's say you're a, you're a zucchini farmer, and you don't do any deals. Everything you see is going to be a zucchini, and that's all you're going to be eating. But you know, if you do a deal with the guy who does the tomatoes, and a deal with a, di- a guy who has the, the, uh, the cow farm, then you know, suddenly you got a cheeseburger there. And, <laughs> and it's a better deal for with, everybody. With
3: zucchini on top. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the zucchini cheeseburger. Um, but but uh, I think people are reticent to do this. And it, sometimes your deals will fail. You've know, you got to be prepared for that. Sometimes you'll buy something and it just won't work, or sometimes you'll do something and it just won't ha- happen, and sometimes a business will go out of business. But y- if you just keep doing these deals, you're all gonna be better off, and so are all the people around you, and so are all the people around them. It's gonna, It has a uh, ripple effect that is really powerful. So think in terms of that deal. Every time you shake hands, make so, a deal. So I gotta ask you, Tim. Um, Hotmail never generated,
3: it had a great viral marketing, it was the first radically viral brand, but you never generated revenue. Uh, YouTube, but yet you sold to Microsoft for 400 million or whatever it was. YouTube, same thing. It's now I think the number one site on the web, right? But still, there was really no revenues associated, yet they sold to Google for what, 1.3 billion. So. Are you, do you still get, do you get excited about, well, I know why, because people overpaid, but,
1: (laughs) but, (laughs) now, (laughs) okay, I would disagree. I think people underpaid, because, for a couple of reasons, think about Microsoft's marketing budget, it's, I don't know, would you know, hundreds of
2: billions? Well, it's not hundreds
1: of billions
2: because
1: that's part of their revenue, but it's a lot. Fifty billion. Right, that's a lot. It might be $50 billion. By buying Hotmail, they got one of the greatest marketing vehicles in the world for a simple $400 million. So relative, it was like one one one-hundredth of their marketing budget, and they got this incredible thing that reached now up to 500 million people. That was a huge steal. In fact, if you ask Bill Gates what was the best acquisition he ever did, it's Hotmail.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And um, and I think Google's best acquisition was YouTube, and for the for a similar reason, when they paid it paid 1.4 billion for it, they calculated that it was worth 14 billion in advertising revenue to Google. So uh, just so. Not just the marketing, but but how it moved up the scales, how it moved up the uh, the Google ranks, how people would pay more, they'd be online more, all that stuff. Um, it ended up being worth fourteen billion dollars to Google. So uh, so yeah. it's interesting you can you can build a, an enormous business that doesn't have any revenue uh, as long as there is a partner, that you can do a deal with uh, that can take advantage of, uh, of what you've built. You might
2: have just saw where Twitter got funded at a $250 million valuation. And it has zero revenue. So yeah. it's it free, is alive, and well.
3: And i got to bring up Skype because it ties into uh, our Stanford thing here. Tim funded Skype, and then I don't know how many years ago, but at our Stanford summit with uh, STVP, we gave Skype company of the year And Tim and Nicholas Zenstrom, the founder, beamed into Stanford at 8 o'clock in the morning from Estonia right after a board meeting so that they could accept the award for the company of the year. And And that was the first public showing of Skype video, which has basically changed most of our lives. And that was another company that sold for billions of dollars
1: that had no revenue. That one actually did have revenue because they have Skype out, and it turned out it was becoming a phone company. So I'm surprised phone companies didn't buy it. Um, But i got to give incredible credit to Tony. I was supposed to speak at his event, and I said, Tony, I'm so sorry. I can't speak at your event. I'm going to be in Estonia, and it's going to be a little bit of a trick. And I said, can I do it by video somehow? And... and, uh, this is before, you know, video conference was <laughs> Every, it was it was a very difficult thing to pull off. And Tony goes, Hey, do you think you can get that Nicholas guy on there with you and you know we do sort of like a video teleconference thing? And I said, okay, we're gonna give it a shot. But this is a great risk taker because that could have been just an hour of downtime for his whole conference, you know. everybody staring at a blank screen and Tony doing a song and dance. But, but uh, instead, instead, Nicholas and Giannis took this on as a challenge because they were just doing a beta of their Skype video. And they were just starting it. And they hadn't even actually launched it, but they were, they were thinking, well, God, we can certainly pull this off. They shouldn't use somebody else's video conferencing machine. So as great entrepreneurs, they, they loaded, they basically took everybody's bandwidth for that hour that they possibly could, and they loaded it all up. You know, They had the peer-to-peer system. So they, they artificially loaded it up and this, this thing came in clear as a bell. We, we spoke, but we had a great time. We you had sang. A, I, did I sing? Yeah, you
2: sang the Skype song. That was it. <laughs> Skype. And you know,
1: it just put, <laughs> oh, Skype.
3: And, and, and to put this, this in a historical exp, uh, perspective, yeah. the big rumor at, on that, around that time was that Yahoo was wanting to buy Skype for $100 million, And Tim, in all his brilliance, was going,
1: no way
3: and they ended up selling for $4 billion. So it was good that you waited. Um, so this part of the discussion is just shows you that if you generate revenue in your company, you risk valuation. Uh, <laughs> because then they have something to measure. They were. <laughs> so Michael's going to talk a little uh, about subject He's passionate about social learning just for one second, and then we're going to open it up to our lovely No, and it,
2: and, and it just... As you think about big ideas and opportunities, I think one of, the, one of the areas that's emerging is in the whole area of social learning. You know, The internet's democratized learning, increasing access, lowering the co- cost. And I think now with social learning, what you're going to see is it improved the quality going on as a company that Tony started actually that uh, just got at Warden, And I just think when you, when you see what's going on in that marketplace and the importance of knowledge in the, in the knowledge marketplace and the global marketplace, that's a huge idea.
3: Yeah, so to kind of wrap up that thought, I think if you look at you know Facebook and MySpace and Twitter, all of these great new companies and applications have conditioned all of us to change our behavior and to do things in new ways. And now that behavior, those, those kids are in the workforce, and they're, and they're going to need, they're going to take those behavior patterns into the business world and that, in my mind, is going to create a bunch of big thing opportunities in the whole professional, you know, enterprise space. Uh, I, I just met a company today. I forget what it's called, but they do a Twitter uh, for uh, the uh, office environment. Which is, and the question, you know, how it says, Tony is, and then you fill it in. It says, what are, What are you working on now, or, or, or mm-hmm. I'm working on this now? And so, you know, it, it, it encourages collaboration. Uh, and let people in your virtual workforce know, hey, this is I'm working on this project now, this proposal now, and it's just a way to keep people up with what you're doing so if somebody, you know, in your world goes, oh, I, I've been thinking about that, and they can contribute to it, uh, they'll contact you. Okay, with that, I notice we have a couple mics here. Uh, I want to open up the discussion to our, our world out here. Uh, anybody want to ask one of these fine gentlemen a question? Uh, there
0: we go. Hi. My name is Ed Chow. I'm an entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley. And my question is for the panel, um, which is, do you see that the business strategies used for the, that the internet entrepreneurs use, do you see them working in the clean tech industry, or are we talking about totally different ballgames and business strategies?
1: Well, you know, there's actually a great company that, we've, um, that we funded called Enernoc, and it, and it combines the two. What they do is um, they allow people to, uh, right now, if you, if you create your own energy, you can uh, sell it to the grid, and, um, and you, if you sell it at the right time, you know, normally people just sell it whenever they can, but they could get anywhere from $0.05 cents a kilowatt hour to $2 a kilowatt hour. Um, what EnerNoc does is they go in there just before these guys are about to sell it to the grid, and they say, no, wait two hours. It's going to be noon, everybody's air conditioner is going to go on, and it's going to be worth $2 a kilowatt hour. And, and, uh, and so they're using electronic technology, I mean, or, or software, to apply to the clean tech world. And I think there are many, many other applications like that. In fact, um, a solar panel is really a semiconductor. And, that, um, and and there are better and better solar panels happening because semiconductors are getting to be smaller and smaller. We're getting toward nanotech solar panels as well as nanotech uh, semiconductors. So I think all technologies have opportunities to merge with one another. It actually, it gets me thinking. Um, one thing I didn't mention was, um, if you're not for free trade, Think about not dealing with China right now. Your your computer would ma- be made up of a cathode ray tube. A, um, a instead of memory, you'd have a little uh, string around your finger. And uh, and instead of uh, a, a, a processor, you would uh, you'd you'd have to use your own. And I think uh, I think there is, you know, the idea of of any kind of protectionism is so ludicrous in this world that has allowed us to all communicate, to uh, to allow geographic borders to fall, and to allow all of us to make deals with one another wherever we might be, and we all are better off because of it. It's it's one of those things. Anyway, this is more than you asked for, but it is so important. So you know, write your congressman. Free trade, hey! Just one, one other. Free trade or die. Protectionism. I yeah. mean, basically, you get back into the cave.
2: One, one other point, just on the green tech and the internet convergence, or because you, know, you look at energy intelligence and leveraging the internet infrastructure to optimize energy in the cloud computing. I mean, that's obviously a huge area that's 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 evolving. You see a lot of. Cool companies being created in that space and an important area.
0: And will we be hearing the Riskmaster tonight? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I've been asked not
2: to sing. <laughs> <laughs> I can
1: understand why. Yeah. I did the asking. Um,
3: Ar- Arden, this is embarrassing. I'm not embarrassing, but this is uh, our editor at Always On who's probably going to ask a hard question. Arden Pennell so. went to Stanford.
2: Yeah, Stanford, and Always On. Uh, This is a question for Tim. Sorry, I'm losing my voice a little today. I thought your point about not needing to monetize a technology as long as you represent a cost savings to some bigger technology firm was interesting, you know, the Hotmail or YouTube, either of them representing a marketing savings. But to use our two specific examples that we've been bandying about on the panel, Twitter and Facebook, Zuckerberg doesn't really seem to want to sell. Twitter refused actually to be acquired by Facebook recently, or those were the rumors. I don't know if they were ever confirmed. So if they actually want a liquidity event like an IPO instead of just selling to some bigger company, can you rub your crystal ball and tell me how they're going to make money?
3: How,
1: yeah, I, I actually think there's some, uh, there's some really great um, interesting applications for both of those. Uh, some, are, some are clearly advertising. I mean, they're right. going to be able to put ads on there whenever they decide to. Well, in the Marc um, for now, interview, he for said... For now, they don't want yeah. to. Um, but then they can make deals. I mean, how many Facebook users are there out there? They oh. can make deals with all these other people who do figure out how to make money on Facebook. Um, all the widgets on Facebook are, uh, a lot of them are created by entrepreneurs who have come to them and said, how do we get on your network? And they are building things that actually do generate revenue, and they share it with Facebook. So Facebook actually does make money, and Twitter is probably gonna make money in similar ways. I think they, anyway, they they do it by doing deals. It's all about the deal.
2: Okay.
4: (laughs) Okay, this gentleman. Yes, my question is uh, to the panel in general. You know, there's a lot of talk about these big communities are being formed, but if we look at a, a big market here in the US, you know, the Hispanic market is a huge market. It's the fastest growing demographic, but it's really hard to uh, find you know, venture capital that's interested in investing in there. Yeah. So any thoughts around that? And uh, you know, because that's really the, the fastest growing demographic in the US.
2: <coughs> yeah, well, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's obviously a huge opportunity um, and one of the things that, and I, and I you know, just look at at. We talk about Facebook, but Tim, but Tony talked about Penguin. I mean, there's all these different demographics that you you play to. I mean, you know, the, the anyway. I mean, as you, as you do research about Facebook, it's interesting because it's really not popular as popular with the minority community. You know, with minority communities, and I think you you look at target marketing the specific demographic groups it has been a historical recipe to get higher. Higher CPMS and higher opportunities. So I think there is terrific opportunity in that market. You see some, you see. I mean, I see a handful of companies being created there, but not as many as you think, given the power of that demographic group.
1: We've actually funded two, three that kind of fit in that demographic. There's something financiera that um, that's like a new kind of bank that's person-to-person lending uh, through uh, through, and, and most of them are Latino. Most of the customers Latino, um, and uh, and another company that is um, a, a sort of a drugstore, um, Farmacias Remedios? that is specific. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mercado. Anyway, then there's another there's another one that is very interesting, and it starts with the, the Latino community. It's healthcare. It's it's a new healthcare system where they um, people just go in, they pay forty bucks. They get their antibiotic from the doctor. They get the Band-Aid put on. They get their, the air, air cast put on their ankle, whatever. And then they're out. And they're, um, these guys have done um, a series of deals with uh, Walmart. And, uh, and the Latino community has flocked to this because they're, you know, they don't want to be in some healthcare system that is failing in a disaster. And they'd rather just go in, see the doc, and come out. Now, they're the early innovators, and they're the ones who are coming in, and then all the rest of us are gonna say, hey, what, you know, what am I doing with this weird health insurance thing and paying all this money when I can just go to the doc, pay my 49 or $99, and I'm out of there, and I've got a great program. So, yes, there is great innovation coming from that community. Yes, it has a specific demographic, and it is a growing community, and we're aware of it. Just as a side note, uh, Brazil, and I know they speak Portuguese there, but
3: that's a huge, huge uh, market right now uh, where there seems to be a lot of momentum uh, and a lot of people looking at that for uh, new entrepreneurial uh, opportunities. This gentleman here.
4: I'm just going to add a little something on that. And you're seeing this model not just in the Hispanic community. A lot of the innovation that wasn't mentioned today is happening on mobile and alternative payment models. Like, the uh, World Mobile Compass, the company that won just a year for innovation, is a mobile payment system company. I think it's Star Media, something like that. Yeah. And they literally have set up a network in their first test with Vodafone was in Kenya, where they're adding ten thousand paid customers and killing Western Union. And you see in the United States too, with companies like Metro BCS, there's a major trend called flat rate pricing, like with the medical services. But for finance, they do like prepaid credit cards. The only problem is the last mile for people who are unbanked, turning that money on these devices yeah. into actual ATMs. Into real dollars, yeah. yeah. And that's it's a hundred billion dollar market that's growing 10 to 15%, but I mean, it's not that much money. Going,
1: <laughs> that's going on, and we actually have done one in India called MCheck, check yeah, and Google's one, there too, one yeah. in China. Yeah. Um, which uh, slips my mind right now, and, uh, and one in Vietnam. Yeah. So absolutely, that's a really cool opportunity. I don't know why, we're, why we have all these credit cards. They waste
4: well, the wallet
1: time, whatever. Mm-hmm. you you got a you uh, cell phone. Just go sweep it, swipe it, whatever, and get it Well, the problem make your is, payment.
4: It's like you said earlier, transition. Most of the revenue, 80% of it is outside, which is great import for us. There's a problem where we're used to paying 10 to $100 for things. In the second and third world, they're used to paying $1 to $10 because that's about what they make. But there's a nice nexus coming up with companies like uh, – we do a lot of widgets space on open social and Facebook. There are companies that are being able to turn information from the second and third world into tens of dollars here because they're saving survey and other companies that research costs, and then they do microtransactions. And then the last part is can you – for people who don't have bank access – Put that capital on a device that they can use to spend, and that's where there's going to be savings for companies here and profits for people who have information we need. So it's going to give us a reverse digital flow. Cool.
1: Um, it might be wonder- our first Kenyan company. We,
4: you know,
1: send it our way. Yeah.
4: We'll talk yeah. afterwards.
0: Uh, I'm interested in uh, what you think the prospects are for the emergence of the semantic
1: web and the Internet of Things. And if you think prospects are positive,
0: sort of how sort of your prediction of how that might evolve, and sort of what time frame we're looking at.
1: It's it's cool. It's I mean we I I think it's cool because I, the semantic web is already happening. Let's face it; it's not like when's it gonna happen. It's already happening. You've got um, people are helping people with their problems. Uh, it's it's happening in customer service. People, you know, co- companies say, "I kind of can't handle all these customer service calls. Let's just send it out to the other customers who love giving the advice." And so it, it's it's going in that that direction. We have uh, great company called Radar Networks that is trying to build a semantic web uh, that that everybody then will uh, add to and. Uh, it's, it's a little it works a little the way a Wikipedia might have. Uh, I think that it's just a wonderful thing that we've got going. And there's so many things. And the semantic web can take on different forms. So I, I think you're going to have a lot of fun with it. So if you got one of those, go for it. I, I don't know what's going to happen, where the big opportunity is going to be. Customer service is definitely one of them. Um, but I think there are going to be all sorts of other things. Information, it, it will be a better way to search than Google.
2: Yeah, I think in information in terms of knowledge, and it certainly <laughs> is you know, the future, and I think to Tim's point you know, how quickly and, and, and where the specific area is, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's Web 3.0, Web 4.0. Are there
1: any particular challenges you see that need to be overcome? Sort of the, sort of People areas? have to try it. People have to use it.
3: Okay, unfortunately, Tina's telling me we have uh, the opportunity for one more question, so I'll turn to this gentleman. But uh, it should note that Mike and uh, Tim agreed that they'll hang around until about 9 or 10 tonight. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. so if you have questions, but you might have to buy them a beer. I <laughs> have lots to talk about. My name is Lane, I represent Togetherville.com. I'm optimistic. We've that the, seen you. That, that the expansion of <laughs> social uh, learning, the social learning that we talked about, I hope that expansion will help democratize learning for kids. Do you think this will happen more through the classroom or at home with family, with families?
2: So I, I, I missed part of your question. You think the social learning is going to happen more in the traditional classroom, or do you think it's going to be outside? Will
3: of the expansion of the virtual social learning happen
2: in the classroom or at home with families? Oh, I think it's. I think it's going to. You know, first of all, I think it's going to be all over. I think it's absolutely going to be embedded in the classroom, but I think it's going to carry over into the families and outside into the communities, which I think is very exciting. And by the way, you know, enhance the learning tremendously. I mean, you look at all the ways that people learn. The worst way to learn is the way we're doing it right here, us talking to you. You know, the, the, the interaction, and in the community, and the, the sharing, it, it just goes off the charts in terms of how people retain, retain things and what they learn. So,
1: Yeah, I think it's neither. I think it's fun. Yeah. I think it Absolutely. fun is what makes it all happen. That yeah. you get more, make it more fun. You, you all learn. You all grow. Uh, I think you work better that way.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, my, my name is Georgia. My name is Georgia. I answer this question because uh, this is very important. It's, Your very, important. it's very important. You Stick around. I would yeah, like yeah. yeah, yeah. That's important because everybody concerns the global economic crisis. I tell you why.
0: You know what? Can I ask a favor? This is being podcast and we have a time limit so I'm going to ask you to talk to these guys afterwards. So thank you so much. I'm sure it's really interesting. Okay. Thank you very much. I just hope you all agree that this has been an incredible way to end Entrepreneurship Week. And I want to thank our amazing panel. You have been listening the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.